Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkle, and coming up on the program, a first-hand account of 1830s Florida in the book An Englishman in the Seminole War. He was befriended by several of the doctors, and so he became very useful to the army in St. Augustine and then, of course, eventually in the Seminole War. We'll talk about hurricane houses in the Florida Keys. Construction of concrete hurricane houses was a real collaborative project between multiple interests that materially improved the lives of recipients. And discuss the diverse immigrant community in Ybor City. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When the unaccompanied 16-year-old John Bemrose came to America from England in 1831, he would have recognized this melody as the British national anthem, God Save the King, but not the brand new American lyrics by Samuel Francis Smith. The book, An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, presents a first-hand account of the people and places of the period available to the public for the first time. Randall J. Agostini is the great-great-grandson of John Bemrose and editor of the book. Agostini says that Bemrose had a specific purpose in mind when writing his letters. It seems as though that he had an errant son, one of the, a, a child that was uh, probably more rebellious. And he, I think, was trying to figure out a way how he could communicate with this boy in a way that was uh, kind of uh, exciting and also uh, neutral. And so he used his experiences in uh, that, uh, the days that he spent in the United States in the Army uh, as a vehicle to communicate a lot of his thoughts as to uh, what a person should be and act and that sort of thing. And I think that was his main purpose. In fact, I think that it resonated so well in the family that the other children also wanted copies of the letters he wrote. Randall Agostini was born in Trinidad, grew up in England, served in the British Army, and returned to Trinidad where he had a career as a commercial pilot. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1987 and now lives in Florida. Agostini first became aware of the letters of John Bemrose as a child when he and his two sisters lived with their grandparents in England. My grandmother uh, heard about uh, these letters through her sister, uh, who lived in Rochester, and uh, her name was Beatrice. And uh, she asked her husband, my grandfather, George, to if she could get a copy of this, and he decided to make it into a book. So he had the, uh, the 60 letters typewritten and uh, put in a book, which 
uh, I eventually inherited because uh, when my grandmother died, he gave the book to uh, my mother, and then my mother gave it to me as a reward for writing her memoirs. Agostini has edited the 60 letters of John Bemrose into a compelling narrative that reads like a novel. Thanks to Agostini's editing, the writing of John Bemrose is no longer in letter form. His story is now presented as a memoir. Well, I actually did start uh, from the beginning, and uh, I would take the first letter, and I patterned the uh, chapters per letter, which I eventually changed uh, uh, for this particular book. And I just went through them one by one. And uh, the story itself sort of developed on its own because I found that there may have been duplications of the same story in different letters. And often it was seen by John from a different perspective, and I found that very interesting. And so the, the composite picture of a particular story was even more interesting as a result. For more than 150 years, John Bemrose's experiences in Florida during the Seminole War was only read by his family members and descendants. Eventually, Agostini realized that the public might find the story to be engaging and informative. It was really written for my family. You know, we're all progeny of him. And so that was really what it was for. I had originally copied the book, uh, Xeroxed the book, and I had sent copies uh, all over the world to the extended family of my mother. And uh, there were over 30. And uh, that generated a lot of interest. But uh, because of the quality of the copy and also the difficulty of reading the language, uh, the way it was written at that time, it was not an interesting read as what I tried to make it into as, as a real story that followed one day upon the next. Agostini has succeeded in transforming the letters into a compelling work accessible to modern readers. John Bemrose came to America from England in 1831 as an unaccompanied 16-year-old. Although he was too young to serve in the United States Army, he was accepted anyway. He was a young man, and he had the misfortune. At the time, he was an apprentice. Uh, we would call him a druggist there. They would call him a chemist in England. And he was an apprentice chemist uh, and very happy working there. But uh, there was a person who he worked with who looked as though he befriended him, was really his enemy. And as a result, uh, John Bemrose uh, ran away from that institution. And I don't think that he knew exactly what he was going to do. He was just running away from a situation, and he found himself in Liverpool, and uh, he had this excitement of seeing the ships and beginning to have this wanderlust of a young man, and he sold the great coat that his father had given him to pay for the voyage to come to America. And he had very little money left uh, with him uh, after paying for the passage. So he landed up in New York, and eventually he uh, walked to Philadelphia. Uh, he walked through New Jersey, and he ran out of money, and he became completely dependent upon other people, 
And uh, so he realized it was, uh, he, he was able to join. First of all, he tried the Navy, and then he, he subsequently joined the Army because I think they were paying a little bit more up front. Bemrose documented his life as a dedicated hospital steward both before and during the Second Seminole War. His detailed writing tells us a lot about medical practices in 1830s Florida. This was, I think, a huge accident. Uh, what happened was the hospital in St. Augustine needed uh, professional people. And the training that he had received, although he thought it was a sort of more provisional uh, sort of training, had a great deal more expertise. But the other thing that happened to him is that he was befriended by several of the doctors. And so he became very useful to the army in St. Augustine and then, of course, eventually in the Seminole War. Anyone interested in Florida history will find Bemrose's descriptions of 19th century St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Micanopy, and other locations intriguing. Randall Agostini. Oh, yes. He had to travel. The army made him travel around Florida uh, quite extensively in those days, uh, mainly by boat, because uh, they didn't have a road system as we know it now. Bemrose also shares his memories of walking through the Florida wilderness and personal observations of people who are now historic figures, including Osceola and Charles Bulow. The Seminole War, in fact, was the training ground for a lot of important officers in the Civil War. And they were junior officers during the Seminole War, and they became important people in the Civil War. And, of course, he remembered those people at the time when he started to write his letters. Randall J. Agostini is editor of the book An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org. The FHS Press Summer Book Sale is on now with 50% off the cover price of all titles. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the history of writing about hurricanes has become more complicated over time, moving from disaster narratives to explorations of environmental, social, and policy changes that affect the region and the nation. Major hurricanes have the capacity to generate reforms that address problems predating the storm or anticipate future storm-related issues. For example, the Galveston, Texas hurricane of 1900 
produced changes in city government after the city council was blamed for failures to prepare the community for destructive storms. The commission form of government was introduced there in 1901 and quickly spread from Galveston to more than 500 cities across the country. In the Jim Crow South, commission government was embraced as a mechanism to prevent the election of blacks to city council. In 1969, when Hurricane Camille ravaged the Gulf Coast, victims complained that they were not warned sufficiently of the storm's destructive potential. As a result, government weather forecasting began to include the Safer-Simpson scale in the assessments of hurricane strength. After Hurricane Andrew hit Broward County in 1992, Florida reformed its hurricane insurance system and created a statewide universal building code to improve roof construction. Finally, the aftermath of Katrina in 2005 included a human diaspora from the Gulf South of over a million people and massive environmental destruction that included the loss of trees, beach erosion, and oil leakage into the Gulf waters. More than 1,800 people died as the result of Katrina, primarily due to the failure of levees and flood walls, leading the Army Corps of Engineers to re-engineer and improve the resiliency of those flood barriers. Connie, we've had a number of major hurricanes in Florida, and one that had a particularly major impact was the September 2, 1935 hurricane that made landfall in the Upper Keys. The Labor Day hurricane of 1935 has been the subject of several narrative histories that focus on the human drama and the cyclone's destructive power. They were primarily interested in the insufficiency of weather forecasting, the delays in rescue attempts that led to the deaths of more than 400 people, mostly veterans of World War I, who were stranded on Isla Morado without adequate shelter, and the harrowing tales of those who survived the storm. Although each of the histories acknowledged the recovery efforts undertaken in the following months, no one analyzed the transformative changes those efforts produced until recently. Two articles in the Florida Historical Quarterly, one published in 2012 and a second 10 years later, placed recovery efforts within the context of New Deal government agencies and the American Red Cross to highlight not simply the replacement of lost homes, but the creation of hurricane-proof housing and the introduction of modernity to the Florida Keys. How did the New Deal affect the aftermath of the hurricane? Matthew G. Hyland argued in his article that by examining the federally funded and designed home building following the 1935 hurricane in the upper Florida Keys, two important developments became evident. The emergence of a distinctive type of Florida architecture, the Hurricane House, and an enlarged federal role for Monroe County. Although Highland recognizes that the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, FARA, worked with the Red Cross Disaster Relief to restore the Upper Keys to livability, he argues that insufficient attention has been given to the work of the federal agency and uses his article to rectify that oversight. Moreover, even within Florida's New Deal histories, the seemingly smaller post-hurricane project of constructing single-family dwellings seemed less significant to subsequent historians than the larger projects that produced public housing projects 
in Jacksonville and Miami, the construction of Miami's Municipal Stadium, or the building of the National Guard Armory in Tallahassee. But Highland argues analysis of the construction of concrete hurricane houses offers new realizations of Depression-era government action and a seminal moment in the growth and development of South Florida. The houses highlight developments in local construction methods and portray a determination to establish permanent community following an event which, according to some reports, completely obliterated Isla Morado. Connie, from your summary of Highland's article, I'm assuming the latter one focuses on the Red Cross, and there's been other articles focusing on the Red Cross's efforts during this hurricane as well, right? Yes, more recently, Anne-Marie Souter and Raja R.A. Isa, scholars at the Rinker School of Construction Management at the University of Florida, returned to the hurricane houses constructed in 1935 and 1936 to analyze the role of community and the Red Cross in the post-hurricane reconstruction. As their title suggests, they viewed the Red Cross and FARA as agents of modernity. Their focus on the Red Cross and their use of local newspapers to gauge community reactions to Reconstruction efforts provided a more from-the-ground-up approach to understanding the post-hurricane changes. Adding to the problems of recovery, the hurricane destroyed the Flagler Oversea Rail Line that connected Miami to Key West. Newspaper reports indicate that the Keys' population was divided over the prospect of rebuilding the railroad, with many advocating construction of what would become the Overseas Highway instead. Souter and Isa also analyzed the problems inherent in projects with multiple and sometimes overlapping duties and interests. Red Cross officials had decades of experience in disaster relief and often found it frustrating that the presence of a federal agency invited the assumption that all funding for the relief came from government sources. Moreover, FARA had been created in 1933 with a two-year life expectancy. It was winding down to be replaced by the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. Despite the problems they highlight, Sauter and Isa argue that the construction of concrete hurricane houses was a real collaborative project between multiple interests that materially improved the lives of recipients. The hurricane houses were not aesthetically appealing. As Hyla notes, the standardized form of the hurricane houses, some of which can still be seen, illustrated residual progressive social concerns for decent, sanitary, and safe housing. But they are an engineer's standardized, modern answer to a moment of social upheaval. As historical artifacts, they prompt a memory not just of the disaster, but also a moment in time when American society adopted the characteristics of the guarantor state. And let's hope we don't see any history-making hurricanes anytime soon. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. If you refuse me, baby, there's only one thing I can do. If you refuse me, baby, there's only one thing I can do. That's try to find another mama who 
This is Florida Frontiers. Sebastian Garcia is a history student at the University of Central Florida. He has this look at the immigrant community in Ybor City. Dr. Gary Marino is a professor emeritus of history at the University of South Florida in Tampa. He has written and published several books about social, political, and immigration history in Florida. I mainly spoke with him about one of his earlier books, published in 1987, called The Immigrant World of Ybor City, Italians and Their Latin Neighbors in Tampa, 1885 to 1985, which he co-authored with George Pazetta. The title of the book is not an understatement, as this was not an ordinary immigrant community that was typical in other places across the U.S. during this era. It truly was its own world. Historically, if Sicilian Italians or Sicilians went to Philadelphia, New York, they were often supplanting a group. You know, the Irish or Jews were moving out. They were moving in. Puerto Ricans would succeed them. Ybor City is built from the ground up. They're the primary immigrant group. Plus, there was opportunity there. Long before Italians arrived at Ybor City and became one of the primary immigrant groups residing there, that ground-up aspect of its origins in the 1880s further adds to the distinctiveness of this immigrant world. Don Vicente Martinez Ybor, who had been a, a Spanish immigrant, I think in 1848 he had arrived in Cuba, had done very well as a tobacco broker and is prospering with factories. As a good businessman, Ybor wanted stability. So he was considering in 18, or the early 1880s Pensacola and uh, Mobile and Galveston. And a Spanish engineer by the name of Gavino Gutierrez happened to have just visited Tampa, which in the early 1880s had about 1,000 people. Land was cheap. And Ebor took a look and, in fact, sealed a deal, signed with the Chamber of Commerce. So Ebor City is born. As Dr. Mormino explained, Ebor City quickly became a cigar factory town. And by 1900, it prompted broader Tampa to become the leading manufacturing city in Florida. The different immigrant groups that were solely responsible for not only that economic rise, but also Ybor City's explicit differences from other immigrant communities during the early 20th century were Cubans, Spaniards, and Italians. Among the, the big differences, number one, Sicilians and Spaniards and Cubans were notoriously anti-clerical. Now, that does not mean they weren't religious. They're, the people often confuse that. Anti-clerical means they didn't trust the priest. Number two, a very radical community. One of the most radical in terms of politics and outlook in the United States. They, they tended to have brought that from the old world as well. Number three, a violent community in terms of labor agitation. You have strikes, one of them lasting, I think, 10 months. The, the other one might be how extraordinarily well the three groups got along. There was a small minority of black Cubans in Ybor City, Afro-Cubans who lived amidst their other workers. So Ybor City was integrated. There are black Cubans working in the cigar factory. For listeners, what other industry in the United States could a black man work next to a white woman in the South? Ybor City was fluid, a very fluid environment. I interviewed one black Cuban who said at Noche Buena one year, they did not celebrate because a Sicilian grandmother had died as a neighbor. Wow, that stands out in American immigration history. The idea of four groups, black Cubans, Cubans, Spaniards, and Italians, all working together, that's so unlikely. You know, we tend to think of little Italy's as just 
Italians. And, and so Ybor City is kind of its own category there. Dr. Mormino explained the term Latins in Ybor City included all three immigrant groups, and that identity was further reinforced with an us-against-them mentality that many of them carried themselves with when interacting with Anglo-Tampa. Ybor City was despised by many of the Anglos. That's one reason they lived in a very defined community. To give you an example of, of the retaliation, the worst mass lynching in Tampa history is not African-Americans, but two Sicilians who were lynched in 1910. Nevertheless, the Latins focused and devoted most of their time and energy to the people of their communities. So massive, intense, and encompassing was this devotion that ushered Ybor City into an immigrant world and not just a community. A vivid example of this is with the mutual aid societies that were built by the Latins that made Ybor City so distinctively one of a kind. Ybor City is, is the most fascinating community I ever encountered. I've looked at a lot of immigrant communities. I'd go down a couple times a week with my portable tape recorder, and I would go into the mutual aid societies. I think I wrote, if the cigar factory was the heart of Ybor City, the mutual aid society was the soul. There were two great Spanish societies, El Centro Asturiano and uh, El Centro Español. Buildings are still standing. I've, I've never seen anything quite like it in the United States. Uh, they had ballrooms, dance floors, Sunday tea dances. They had very progressive mutual aid. You paid, I think, a quarter a week for your family, and you also received medical benefits. They had modern hospitals. You could make an argument that the best medical care in Florida in 1910 and 1930 was owned by those of Ybor City. Now, the Italians never had their own hospital. They had a medical clinic on the facility, but the two Spanish societies had very modern hospitals. Despite the significance and uniqueness Ybor City possessed from other immigrant communities, it was not invincible. The fall from the Ybor City of old was starting to unfold during the post-World War II years, especially in the 1960s with urban renewal. The 1960s is really a critical watershed. The federal government comes in and says, we're going to save Ybor City by destroying it. That you had hundreds and hundreds of shotgun-style homes, mom-and-pop cafes. These structures were deteriorating. And the businessmen think urban renewal is just what Ybor City needs. The federal government is going to come in, tear down all the clutter, and they're going to put in new structures. This is classic urban renewal or urban removal. Uh, I think they bulldozed 67, 69 acres, enormous amount of land. Basically, from where Central Asturiano is, there was just kind of a wasteland of about a quarter mile, and they never really replaced it with new structures. Between the 60s and the 90s, when I arrived, I thought Ybor City was the most magnificent thing I'd ever seen. People now inform me, you saw it when it was at the Nadir. Ybor City's presence at the turn of the 20th century was remarkable in its contours and elements that made it unlike any other immigrant experience in the country, but also remarkable in its timing. A century later, Ybor City may not be the vibrant cultural oasis as it once stood. However, the basic foundations of multiple ethnic cultures interacting with each other in all aspects of life remain strong in other places in Florida, like Orlando, Tampa, and Miami. Everyone deserves their own Ybor City. Ybor City is never static talking, I think I've defined about five Ybor cities from the, you know, the, those early years where it was very uh, 
precarious to today's Ybor City. In that case, everyone did get their own Ybor City. And as he and George Pizzetta wrote in the final sentence of the final chapter of the book, Ybor City still lives. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Sebastian Garcia, an undergraduate history student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and this week, Sebastian Garcia. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.